Hello, and welcome to Title Volume by Breathe Easy Pediatrics, a podcast series focusing on the core concepts of pediatric pulmonology. My name is Ryan Thomas, and I'm a pediatric pulmonologist and CF Center Director at the Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Today, I bring you a conversation with Dr. Amy DiMarino, the Director of the Pediatric Pulmonary Hypertension Program at Case Western Reserve University and Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in Cleveland. As you might imagine, we will be covering pediatric pulmonary hypertension, including the underlying pathology, the evaluation and management of this condition. It is an incredibly complex topic, and I was really impressed with how well she was able to succinctly cover all the information in a way that was easy to understand. I really think all of our listeners will enjoy and get something out of this discussion, so let's get started. Well, I'd like to welcome to the podcast today, Dr. Amy DiMarino, who is a assistant professor of pediatrics at Case Western University and the program director of the Pediatric Pulmonary Hypertension Program at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in Cleveland, Ohio. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the invite, Ryan. And so before we get started, I guess I would just be sort of interested to hear how you ended up working in the field of pediatric pulmonary hypertension, and just maybe tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself. Sure. So I trained here in Cleveland, both um, did my residency and fellowship here at Rainbow Babies. And um, interestingly enough, I had a family member with pulmonary hypertension in, in her adulthood, my grandmother. And that had originally piqued my interest in pulmonary hypertension. And then when it was time for me to sign on as faculty, there was uh, open position to do pediatric pulmonary hypertension as a pulmonologist. And because it is such a complex disease in children, that's definitely a niche that is needed in the pulmonology world. And so I felt that it was an awesome opportunity for me to be able to take care of patients with this condition. So along with my special interest in um, BPD, bronchopulmonary dysplasia, and ventilator-dependent children, a lot of them have pulmonary hypertension is a comorbidity. And so it definitely was something that was directly related to my interest in my clinical practice. So that's why I'm doing this. Sort of thinking back to when I was in medical school, we learned about pulmonary hypertension. It was always in the context of adults. And I think it wasn't until probably I went to fellowship that I had a, a real understanding of how this is becoming a more prominent topic in children. I'm guessing you might have some insight into why it is that this has become more important in the pediatric world. Over the years, we've learned more and more about how pulmonary hypertension in children can be a pretty devastating comorbid diagnosis. And so we've become much more aware that it can be associated with other underlying medical conditions, especially with the advent of whole exome sequencing and genetic disorders that are predisposing factors to pulmonary hypertension. And so um, in the pediatric world, unlike the adult world, there's a lot of other comorbidities that are associated with pulmonary hypertension. And it's really important to recognize it and treat it because it helps prevent morbidity and mortality down the road. Well, that certainly makes sense why this is becoming a more important thing to focus on clinically. I think moving on to the core of the, of the content of what we want to talk about today, 
I think a good place to start is just at the very basic. What What is pulmonary hypertension? Sure, that's a great question, Ryan. As you probably recall from pulmonary physiology, the pulmonary circulation is normally a very low pressure system. And so the right side of the heart is not designed to really pump blood per se, like the left side is to the rest of the body. And so the amount of pressure that the right side of the heart usually sees is very, very low. But when there's pulmonary hypertension present, there is increased pressures in the pulmonary circulation. And therefore, it leads to right-sided heart strain, and that's technically what pulmonary hypertension is. You hear people throw around some different terms when it comes to pulmonary hypertension. There's sort of pulmonary hypertension in general, and then people say pulmonary arterial hypertension or pulmonary venous hypertension. And I guess I'm sort of curious, what is the differentiation between those terms? We use pulmonary hypertension as kind of a broad term, and oftentimes we use PAH and PH, pulmonary arterial hypertension, and pulmonary hypertension are used interchangeably, but from a standpoint of where the etiology of the problem is, is actually different. And so PAH, which is pulmonary arterial hypertension, is actually an elevation in the pressure in the pulmonary arterial system purely on its own um, with normal pulmonary venous pressures. And so um, if you have pulmonary hypertension in the context of an underlying lung disease, say, pulmonary arterial hypertension would have to be ruled out because this is considered a diagnosis of exclusion. And so if you have an underlying cause to have pulmonary hypertension, such as interstitial lung disease or bronchopulmonary dysplasia, then that technically would be pulmonary hypertension related to underlying lung disease, whereas pulmonary arterial hypertension is a diagnosis of exclusion and is purely an abnormality within the pulmonary arterial. Pulmonary venous hypertension is actually the opposite side, and so the pulmonary venous pressures are elevated, and the pulmonary capillary system would be abnormal on the venous side. And so that also is a diagnosis that would be made more in the cath lab. And so right heart catheterization is the gold standard for diagnosis of PAH and PVH, which is pulmonary venous hypertension. And I guess when we're talking about pulmonary hypertension versus pulmonary venous hypertension, how are the pathologies different between those two conditions or or treatments? So when you're talking about pulmonary venous hypertension, there's a lot of potential uh, etiologies, and one of those is PVOD, pulmonary venous obstructive disease, and, and the pathology is much different in a venous type of obstruction. And so... The treatment for it and the way that we make the diagnosis and the etiology of it is very different than in pulmonary arterial hypertension. And so much like you can have an arteriopathy on the arterial side in the pulmonary vasculature, the pulmonary veins can also have abnormalities that they consider like a pulmonary venous venopathy or veinopathy. So the treatments are very different because if you're trying to use medications that would normally dilate arterioles, this could potentially make a patient much worse if they have venous disease. And so oftentimes we'll need a lung biopsy to make the diagnosis of venous disease because it may not be clearly evident on our less invasive studies. So two different pathologies when you look at it on a lung biopsy assessment. If you have a patient who gets trialed on some sort of pulmonary vasodilator and and clearly does worse, would that be then you think about doing the biopsy then, or is it something? Absolutely. Okay. 
And the other thing to think about is that you can see venous pulmonary venous disease in patients with bronchopulmonary dysplasia where they can have pulmonary vein stenosis. And hopefully you would be able to see that on an echo. Um, there are some echo findings that they suggest pulmonary venous obstruction in the larger veins, not on the more tiny vein scale, but those patients will either have flow acceleration or, or no blood return to the left side of the heart. So those are the type of patients that you have to be very wary about using pulmonary vasodilators in. I suppose that can be a challenge just because the pulmonary veins in a, in a wiggly baby are not always really easy to visualize. And so I suppose having a really good person doing the echo and getting a good look at everything makes a big difference in those settings. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Moving on from sort of the basic primer and the terminology, how common is pulmonary hypertension in children? Pulmonary hypertension in children is relatively rare. The exact incidence and, and prevalence in the pediatric population is really not well known. There are some databases in both Europe and the United States that give us some potential incidence data, although it's probably underestimated because many of the places taking care of children with pulmonary hypertension are not registering patients into these databases. But the annual incidence from both the Netherlands and the UK would estimate somewhere between 0.5 to 3 cases per million per year. All right. So this is not a super common thing, but clinically very relevant. Where, where does it come from? What are the sort of causes of pulmonary hypertension? We, we don't know in a lot of cases exactly what causes pulmonary hypertension, but it's likely a combination of multiple insults. And the big things when we think of categories as potential insiders of pulmonary hypertension would include any condition that would predispose you to hypoxemia, inflammation, or mechanical stress. And so you can imagine why chronic lung diseases would be so high risk for this type of pathology. And so in preclinical studies, there is some suggestion that angiogenesis in the lung influences alveologenesis and vice versa. And so anything that would disrupt lung growth or lung vascular growth can impair the other. But regardless of the cause, you see a similar clinical scenario. I guess that makes it a little bit difficult to research because so many of the things we do when looking at sort of research and treatments and stuff like that are trying to base on understanding the underlying cause. And I guess it has to be sort of a challenge when it can be so varied in its root cause. Absolutely. Conducting clinical research in pediatric pulmonary hypertension is a very challenging thing. So we touched a little bit on why it's important to recognize pulmonary hypertension, but I guess my next question will be, well, what are some of the signs or symptoms or clinical manifestations of pulmonary hypertension that we should be looking out for? Unfortunately, the symptoms of pulmonary hypertension in children vary between age groups and are very nonspecific. And so the biggest symptom is usually dyspnea that's worse with exertion and excessive fatigue. And obviously, these symptoms are very difficult to tease out in a young child or an infant. And so over time, this presentation may evolve and eventually progress to signs of overt heart failure, which would include exertional chest pain, potentially presyncope or syncope, and even signs of right heart failure and vascular congestion. 
And so a lot of times children who have pulmonary hypertension, who have idiopathic pulmonary hypertension will go undiagnosed until symptoms are quite severe. And by that point, they are syncopal and present for care. And at that point, it's very difficult to make interventions and help them because their right heart is already failing. And you know, knowing which conditions are associated with pulmonary hypertension is really important to recognize and make the diagnosis if you have an underlying condition that may lead to pulmonary hypertension. So I guess that makes an easy next question. What are some of the underlying conditions that are associated with pulmonary hypertension? That's a very large list, Ryan. <laughs> In my world, um, you know, anything that would cause chronic lung disease, so interstitial lung disease, bronchopulmonary dysplasia, but one of the biggest categories is associated with congenital heart disease. And so if there's a congenital heart lesion, then there's certainly a possibility that the vasculature can be abnormally formed as well. And then any other condition that would predispose to lung undergrowth or hypoplasia can be associated with pulmonary hypertension. Many genetic syndromes, such as Down syndrome, skeletal dysplasias, and there's also some genetic abnormalities that predispose to hereditary forms of pulmonary hypertension. And so family history makes a, you know, knowing the family history is very important too. And then other longstanding diseases that can lead to pulmonary hypertension long-term that we think about that we don't often see as much manifest in childhood, but can over time would include things like sickle cell disease, untreated severe sleep apnea, children with chest wall deformities or scoliosis, long-term severe aspiration, or hypercoagulable states can lead to chronic thromboembolic associated pulmonary hypertension. Another group of patients that are at higher risk but often manifest with pulmonary hypertension later in life are patients with connective tissue diseases. So there are some teenagers that I see in my clinic that are screened for pulmonary hypertension, things like lupus or scleroderma. So it really sounds to me like there's a lot of different specialists in the pediatric world that are going to need to understand pulmonary hypertension, or at least when to look of it. And we're talking about coagulopathies and rheumatologic diseases and cardiac diseases and genetic diseases. There's so many things that can be associated with it. Seems like it's a really important topic, not just for pulmonologists, but for pediatricians in general. Absolutely. And when you read the guidelines for care of children with pulmonary hypertension, one of the main points is that multidisciplinary care is absolutely of the utmost importance. And so because these patients do tend to be so complex and have other medical comorbidities, it's very important for the medical team to really understand and work together to be able to treat these children appropriately. One of the things you mentioned prior was that pulmonary hypertension can run in families. I was just sort of curious, sort of the heritable pulmonary hypertension, if you could talk a little bit more about that. So there is a specific Genetic mutation that's most commonly seen in hereditary cases, and that's the BMPR2 gene mutation, which stands for bone morphogenic protein receptor type 2. And in heritable cases of pulmonary hypertension, that specific gene mutation is present in about 80%. And so as our adult pulmonary hypertension patients are, are living longer, and we're learning more about the genetics of this disease. It's really important for other family members to be screened for pulmonary hypertension if they have a family member with a BMPR2 mutation. 
There's a lot of other genetic mutations that we've seen in the pediatric world that can be associated with pulmonary hypertension, but those are much less common than the BMPR2. So if you have one of these patients with a family history or underlying condition that might predispose to pulmonary hypertension, are there any physical exam findings you should be watching for that might be sort of the first clue there's something going on? So there's no specific exam finding that's pathognomonic for, for pulmonary hypertension. There are some heart exam findings that may suggest pulmonary hypertension. So a, a loud S2, uh, narrowly split or, or single S2. And usually if there's tricuspid regurgitation present, then you may hear a holosystolic ejection murmur. Generally, a diastolic murmur is, a, is not a good sign at all, and in severe pulmonary hypertension, this may be present, and this is a sign of severe RV dysfunction. If there's some right heart failure going on, you may have some hepatomegaly or ascites present, although peripheral edema in children is less common than it is in adult patients. And if these children have been cyanotic for a long period of time prior to their diagnosis, they may have some digital clubbing. All right. So if you're concerned based on your exam finding or the history or just sort of underlying illness about pulmonary hypertension, where do you start with your objective workup there? So usually the first non-invasive test that you should be considering getting is a chest x-ray, an ECG, and an echo. Oftentimes on the chest x-ray, if there's significant pulmonary hypertension present, you'll see cardiomegaly, and what we call pruning of the peripheral vessels because the more proximal vessels become more engorged and dilated. The ECG will show signs of RVH and sometimes a right bundle branch block, depending on how dilated your right side of your heart is. And then the echo will be more diagnostic, although it's more of a qualitative study than a quantitative study, but things you may see on an echo would be right ventricular hypertrophy, right ventricular dilation, septal flattening, and if there is an atrial level shunt or a PDA present, you may see right to left shunting. Oftentimes there will be tricuspid regurgitation. And if you have a good sonographer, hopefully they would be able to measure a tricuspid regurgitation jet, which would give you a estimate of your right-sided pressures. And then you may see pulmonary artery dilation and abnormal Doppler profiles on the echo. But the gold standard for diagnosis, as I mentioned, is really a right heart cath. And oftentimes, we like to have that data prior to starting therapy. If the patient is stable enough at that point to get a right heart cath, so that those other diagnoses, such as venous disease, can be ruled out. So if, if you do find some pulmonary hypertension, is there any other testing that is generally worthwhile? And in, in what circumstances might you order it or not order it? If you're concerned about underlying lung disease, it would be really helpful to have CT scan of the chest to rule out parenchymal lung disease. And there are some findings you can see with veno-occlusive disease, which is CVOD. If your patient has a hypercoagulable state, it's helpful to know uh, if they have evidence of clot burden in their lungs, which would also be seen on a CT scan. Although a VQ scan would be helpful too, um, a VQ scan is helpful when you're looking at venous disease. You may see a differential in the ventilation and perfusion, and potentially a lung biopsy should be considered if you're not 100% convinced 
you know what the cause of the pulmonary hypertension is, or if you want to confirm that it truly is idiopathic. So what would the lung biopsy look like in a child with pulmonary hypertension? So there's certain things on pathology when you have idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension. And so it's what's considered a proliferative vasculopathy of the small muscular pulmonary arterioles. And if it's just pulmonary arterial hypertension, that may be the only thing you see. And so as part of this vasculopathy, you would see what they call plexiform lesions within those pulmonary arterioles. And they also develop medial hypertrophy of the smooth muscle and intimal hyperplasia. And so depending on what stage of pulmonary hypertension they're in may cause more obliteration of those pulmonary arterioles. You may see fibrosis and thrombosis as well, because as you can imagine, when the vessels are more narrow, things tend to get stuck and you can, that can cause some clotting. And as the disease progresses, the lumen of these arterioles will get smaller. So when we're thinking about the severity of pulmonary hypertension, is it based on things like biopsies or echoes or cath, or is it more based on clinical symptoms and limitations? So that's a good question. Classifying pulmonary hypertension is actually a very interesting thing. And so generally there are some clinical measures we use to classify it, such as functional class type data, And the echo can be suggestive of the severity, but ultimately you need a right heart cath in order to actually directly measure the the pressures within the right side of the heart to make that diagnosis, whether it's mild, moderate, or severe. So once you've made the diagnosis and sort of characterized the severity of the pulmonary hypertension, what are the different management options that depends on what the underlying cause is, but generally when we're talking about pulmonary arterial hypertension, we use three general classes of medications to treat that. One of them is PDE5 inhibitors, one is endothelin receptor antagonists, and then the third class is prostacyclins. And so usually if a patient has idiopathic pulmonary hypertension, they need at least two of these medication classes, if not more, oftentimes in hereditary PAH, which is very similar to idiopathic. From a pathology standpoint, you'll also need more aggressive therapy. If there's lung disease, oftentimes we'll use things like oxygen and treatment of their underlying lung disease, you know, ventilatory support and things like that. So how do you monitor response to therapy once they've been started on something? Oftentimes, we'll perform serial echoes, and the frequency at which we do them depends on each patient individually. That's one non-invasive way to monitor response to therapy. Obviously, there's some questions we ask that kind of point towards their functional class, clinically how they're doing, if they presented syncopal and they've no longer had syncope, their exercise tolerance has improved. That can help guide us, and there actually are functional class categories and guidelines for children, depending on the age of the child. Oftentimes, we'll trend their BNP levels or NT-pro-BNP levels, which will hopefully trend down as their pulmonary hypertension improves and the right side of the heart is less stressed. 
in children who are old enough, we can do six-minute walk testing and look for desaturation and walk distance. And then hopefully once you have established that the patient is improving periodically doing repeat right heart caps to actually measure the data after therapy is helpful to make sure that it's actually helping. And if it's not helping, what are the next steps you might consider? Yeah. So escalation of therapy, obviously, if they're only on monotherapy or dual therapy, stepping them up to a higher level of therapy. And so generally, triple therapy is the max that we usually use when we're using targeted therapies. Once you get it into more severe refractory pulmonary hypertension, referral to places with a transplant center that could potentially perform a lung transplant, if you don't have one at your center, should be considered. There's also some palliation type procedures that can be done, such as an atrial septostomy, which is not being done as frequently, but a pot shunt, which is essentially creating like a PDA to help offload some of that pressure can be done to help. But generally, ultimately, if a patient is not responding to therapy, then referral for a transplant may be in order. Given that some people are unresponsive to therapy and you know, talking about something as significant as a transplant, I'm just, I'm sort of curious, what are some of the long-term outcomes? How do kids with severe pulmonary hypertension or pulmonary hypertension in general sort of do in the long run? If the pulmonary hypertension is due to a lung growth abnormality that you expect to improve with time, such as bronchopulmonary dysplasia, those children tend to do much better than, say, someone with idiopathic pulmonary hypertension. And so with children, we don't have a lot of data. We haven't been treating them as long as we've been treating adults. But generally, pulmonary hypertension is associated with high morbidity and mortality. And really, the important thing is early referral and getting them started on therapy before they get to the point where things are severe is usually in the child's best, as always, in the child's best interest. And so when you look at survival, it's not great. Children with severe PAH generally have poor long-term outcomes. And so depending on what data you're looking at, five-year survival may be 75%, but in other studies, it may be more or less than that. That's kind of spooky. I mean, you don't, you don't really think about some of these things being so severe or having survival trends like that, I guess that sort of brings us back to the importance of having a high index of suspicion in people who are at risk because, you know, if it's hard to detect until it's severe, and then once it gets severe, the outcomes are so bad, early recognition just has to be so important. Absolutely. And, and knowing where your resources are too, There are places you can find which centers have pulmonary hypertension, pediatric-specific pulmonary hypertension programs, and, you know, it's helpful to have someone taking care of your patient that has expertise in this because it's obviously very complex. And so knowing when and where to refer is really important. And in general, when do you recommend referral to a pulmonary hypertension specialist? When you detect it. If you suspect it and there is any type of symptom or objective type findings, such as an echo that suggests pulmonary hypertension, there, you're never in the wrong to refer your patient to a pulmonary hypertension specialist. 
So in closing, I just sort of wonder what are sort of the take-home points or what do you think that the trainees out there, what do you think is the most important things they take away from the talk today? I think the most important thing is having an index of suspicion when it comes to pulmonary hypertension in children. Although it's very rare, it is associated with poor outcomes and a poor prognosis. So knowing which conditions may be associated with pulmonary hypertension and knowing generally what the symptoms might be are really important. And so hopefully someday we'll have a much better understanding of the best way to treat pulmonary hypertension in children and learn more about the different pathologies that lead to it, which we're learning more about every single day. But obviously we want them to live long and happy lives and early recognition and treatment is the biggest thing in my opinion. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I think that that was a really excellent discussion of an obviously really clinically important topic, and I, I really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate you inviting me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tidal Volume by Breathe Easy Pediatrics. We welcome your feedback, so feel free to reach out either on Twitter to my account at MSUPedsPalm or to the ATSPEDS account directly. For those of you not on social media, or at least Twitter, you can also reach out to us via titlevolumeatspeds at gmail.com. I'd like to note we don't check this email all the time, so the reply may be a little slow, but I do try to check it semi-regularly. We'd especially welcome ideas on future topics, or even better if someone would like to come present on a topic. We are currently working with Pediatric Pulmonary Fellowship Directors, to come up with future topics that are both high yield clinically and on the board examination. I'd like to apologize for a few of the audio issues on today's podcast. They were not apparent until everything had been recorded, and at that point what was done was done. So if anyone found that annoying, I apologize, and we'll do our best to ensure the audio is high quality in the future. They can be a little difficult given the various recording setups and spaces our future guests may use, but we will do our best. I'd like to thank you again for joining us today, and I'm looking forward to our next episode. I started talking, but I was muted.